Hello world, welcome to another episode of the Deep Dive and it's time, this time it meets Deep Fix and the man behind it, Alex Olshansky. Hi Alex. Hey, hey y'all, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, yeah, without further ado, I'd love us to talk about something and I'll give the short preamble this time maybe. I was looking to somebody to talk about possibly about addiction and somebody who has addiction is part of their uh, journey and the ideas about that. And the reason I was looking for somebody like that was because I had a thought and I had noticed that many, many people, um, including some pretty famous ones who have gone through uh, a period of their life where they were abusing drugs, identify as addicts for the rest of their life and then they are just the addict who doesn't do the stuff anymore. And I really wanted to get somebody's perspective, uh, which could maybe be a, diff a bit different than that, and think about actually healing from addiction. And um, Johnny and Kelly, who've been on this podcast before, both threw out your name immediately. And uh, there we are. So shout out to them. And uh, I'll let you kind of uh, take us maybe through the story of the beginning, maybe a little bit of the first person perspective of what it's like to, um, to get addicted to something or to feel a feeling that uh, attracts you to that. Mm, yeah. Okay. So st yeah, I'll start there maybe on the, the, that first person experience and, what it feels like is, is really, I think on the one hand there, there's an excitement and people often don't like to admit that when we talk about addiction, that actually there's something that whether it's a drug or a process, there's something that it really does for us that, that it almost like excites us. And there's a lot we could talk about, about what we might be avoiding or numbing or distracting ourselves from through that process. But the reality is that um, in my case, there was on the one hand, this allure towards hard drugs, and then also this like tremendous pain and fear at the same time. And so when you find yourself, um, as I did, waking up with cold sweats and leg tremors and in severe withdrawal as someone in their young 20s who's working a su supposedly successful tech job at a great innovative company, I found myself thinking like, how, what the, this is not right. How did I end up here? Like, mm -hmm. and yet at the same time, I wasn't able to really go there and admit to myself that like I was a full fledged addict. Um, what I felt I was encountering was really a physical problem because I was taking uppers and downers, opiates, benzos and um, amphetamines. And when you stop taking them, at the levels I was doing, you, you get really physically sick. And so I was orienting into this like rationalist materialist mindset at the time. And so when I started getting really sick, I was like, oh, okay, you know, I've just got this physical problem that if I remove these, these things in my life, everything will be fine. And I just need to get rid of this withdrawal effect. And, you know, it was tough too, because these, these drugs were helping me perform. They're helping me. It felt, I felt like my best self. And that's that part of talking about like the excitement, mm. you know, like when I was giving, uh, working and, and, and just in tech, 
uh, I would be like so energetic and vivacious. And I felt like the, the drugs were really my best friends. And, um, the writer, David Foster Wallace has a great bit on this. Who also, he faced a lot of addiction where it's like, these, these things are your best friends till they suddenly are not like they, you thought they were going to be your best friends forever. And then someday you realize, Oh, I'm trapped by them and I'm a caught in a prison of my own making. And the thing that I thought would save me is my, is now my like hell. And so I guess it feels really bad. It really hurts once you realize you're in that position and it's really scary. Um, that is least is how it felt for me. And when you're at that, more severe addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so was that what you described? I guess that that wasn't a, a final moment of, of reckoning with a, with a problem with a, with an intent to, uh, to fix it or, or do something about it. Right. Correct. So, uh, what about like from, I, I've had conversations in private before with addicts and, at least there was definitely a theme of people needing to get to uh, some sort of rock bottom before they pick themselves up and maybe try to um, try doing something about it. So is that anything that featured in your journey at all? It, it does. And it is, I think, like if we think about what rock bottom really is, it's when the pain of being in the situation that you're in is just so friggin' can I cuss on this or, or no? Of course. Or, okay. It's so <laughs> fucking unbearable. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. Well, you're come on Israeli. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, it's so fucking unbearable. It's so painful that you're the pain of trying something new is actually feels like a better option. And I think that's, that's, there's something really important about change. Like when, when we reach that point where it's like, Oh, you know what? It's actually, this new thing is going to be so hard because I have no idea how to live without substances. These things that I thought would be my best friend, but I, I have to try and I have to mm. face the withdrawal. And so, yeah, in my case, you know, man, it was a, the period I mentioned when I was like maybe 23 and waking up with the cold, cold sweats and it had escalated from there. You know, I was doing hard drugs when I was 16, 15 years old. And so it, it built to that point. But then from, I think 23 until 27, it got increasingly worse. And I had tried through secretive therapy, secretive outpatient treatment. I had relapse. I'd done what, secretive drug tapers, uh, medically supervised. And, you know, then there's, there's more, there's a lot more color in that story and, and, and darkness. But um, eventually when I hit that, what was my spiritual bottom, um, I was, I was brought to my knees and humbled and just such a, deep way that I, everything that I thought had mattered, my career, my beautiful partner at the time, my wealth, I was, I had lost all my money. I had lost my health. Everything was, was lost. So all these things that I used to be able to cling to were, were now gone. And at that point I was like, I will do anything. Just tell me what to do. You know, mm. I'm ready. Like just, and so then that's where having other people who've walked that path, who can help you is so critical. Um, and that willingness is really important. And like their leading research around addiction suggests that you do, it does require a, a dose of healthy motivation from the individual. And that might sound super obvious, but it's important, right? You can, you, you need to want to change. And the mm -hmm. difference for someone like me, where instead of taking my own life, which was an option, right? Versus changing. Always like that, is, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, and like what, why I actually, I, if I, t- if I tell you the difference there, why I chose to keep going and versus ending it, I, I don't know, but something, and that's like the mysterium tremendum, I think of, of this experience, like, but something mm. drove me to keep going. Um, I do want to say though, you know, cause you bring out a, an important point around this, like rock bottom. Um, I think that the traditional narrative around recovery is, has been that like, you need to hit a bottom to, to change. Um, and I think in the context of like, if you have any friends or loved ones who are facing addiction or family members, um, there's this idea that like, oh, you need to go let them fail and hit bottom and you can't support mm. them. That's been the traditional, almost like interventionist mm. approach to addiction. And I think that that is, is false, right? That people can change at so many different levels and it doesn't necessarily need to look like as disruptive and painful as a rock bottom in the way that most people might identify with it. And so that's to say that um, a person, there are so many, there's many paths up the mountain and a person can recover by getting support from others. And so um, in my case, I experienced rock bottom, but what I'm really trying to say here is that when it comes to supporting the people that you love with addiction, like don't feel like you need to wait until that happens to, to support them. And that's, I think that's a fallacy of our old, more traditional dogmatic thinking. Yeah, I think I think the bottom is uh, ultimately something which you view as such, right? So it's a it's a it's a thing of framing. Like obviously, even even in your case, even in the most extreme case, you can think of someone there. There could have been a um, a bottom that's even lower, right? It's it's not about getting to the lowest possible. It's like hey, I already jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, and I thought I died, and I came back. And that's like the bottom of the bottom. No, I think it's uh, under the right framing. You can view any kind of um, downward spiral as having reached the bottom. And it's just a framing to say like, Hey, we can go up from here. Right. So yeah, that's, that's an important point. I think conceptually. Um, Yeah. You know, I haven't uh, faced a serious addiction in my life. Like, of course there could be things that I, turn to in times of, tr- of stress to alleviate stress. And that could be done um, too many times over a period of time, but nothing that has got me to get my life derailed or anything like that. However, um, I did have a period of uh, suicidal ideation and depression in my teens. And I think that in that sense, I can relate at least to the part where you say there needs to be an opening up to a new experience that is very scary because it's not what you're used to. So the whole um, thing with with novelty, and uh, I think that initially drugs are maybe the most novel thing that a person can encounter, right? It's like um, fireworks and everything. Uh, but at some point it becomes just the habit that's, that's very well known. Um, yeah. So I'd like to, to hear you about that. Oh, and I wanted to say, you say you don't know what kept you going. Um, I think that, uh, for me, at least I think it was, uh, curiosity. And I just suspect that you're a curious person. Like when I faced an actual thought of like killing myself, which I never actually tried to act on, thankfully, but 
I was like, okay, I only have a few more decades here. Then this is where I'm going anyway, right? So I might as well explore this space and not give up early because all I get is, you know, at best like 90 years. Um, and I just wondered if, if there were kind of maybe sparks of that, of just you were not yet... Um, you were not yet convinced that you had seen everything that there is to be seen. Yeah, it, it's a good point. And I should clarify that when I say I don't know what uh, kept me going. I think I'm alluding to the mystery, the capital M mystery in a way that maybe is a little bit more poetic. And, and uh, because the truth is that I, I wanted to live. I wanted life. Mm. I wanted, I wanted to something inside me was drawing me towards like this, yeah, this opening, as you mentioned. And I think that um, it's, yeah, it's a really interesting thing, right? Because we, what, what propelled me at that time was also knowing, and there was a belief that maybe it's possible, even though I had failed so many times before. And the hardest thing that I was doing, and one of the reasons that opioids are so debilitating, we have an opioid crisis, is because they do impact the brain. They rewire the brain. And the withdrawal mm. that they create from high levels is ex extremely pronounced. And the same thing with benzos, right? Everyone, you know, Xanax is really popular, or clonopin, and you take those things to help with your anxiety. But then when you do them habitually, what you're left with as a withdrawal symptom is the worst anxiety you can imagine once that's taken away. And so having to face all this for the first time was almost like, oh, okay, now actually this is your chance for life to begin like day one. You can actually mm. look at the curriculum of emotions and how to deal with uncomfortable feelings and not avoid them. And so I think for me on, on a deeper soul level, which is a way I orient to, to, to this life. Um, there was a part of me that was like, Oh, this is initiation. This is the beginning. Like this is, you, you know, you haven't actually lived until this moment you have been living. You've had some fun and don't get it twisted. You know, you were a DJ and a drug dealer and you had lots of parties and <laughs> you know, like fun times, like, and yet there wasn't a part of me that hadn't even lived. And so I think that um, there, and it, it's, this is really just emerging as we're talking about it, but there was this initiatory sense that like, oh, okay, this is, this is your school of life curriculum and it's time for you to embark on the, the, the you know, baby steps of a new journey. Um, and so um, on a, on a soul level, I, I do have the sense, and this might sound, I don't know, you know, what type of readers or listeners that you have, but I do have like a, a, a gnosis or a felt, a, a just a, a sense, a deeper than even feeling that um, I'm doing like a lot of work for my lineage and for my soul. And mm. that has, that's just like the, the gift that, you know, Plato talks about how we have a lot that we're giving our soul chooses. And for whatever reason, I chose to, to take that on. And, um, and so that's, I guess, what, what I'm doing and what I have been doing since. And so, yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. I love the, the framing of, you know, coming to, to do something. And also you mentioned lineage and, um, yeah, we carry a lot of baggage that uh, past generations have, have carried. And it's always an amazing opportunity 
to make things better, not just for you, right? But for a whole, for a whole uh, lineage of people. And I think it's also, um, humbles you in a way where you can understand that whatever progress you're making is a great, great contribution without needing to know that you have solved everything once and for all, because our descendants are also going to face their own, uh, traumas and, and, and deal with that. But just the feeling that you're able to be some sort of a, a last stop, uh, for at least one thing, you know, that's been, that's been running through uh generation is, is a, is a great feeling. Um, yeah. So if, if more specifically, like you want to talk about the idea of how your world is really restricted into like using drugs and then into the whole framework that works for you of opening up to other things and really not just stopping at not using drugs, but actively, not just resisting, but actively pursuing um, other things that have a positive value and not just avoiding the negative value stuff. Mm, yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. And I do just want to respond to, you know, we both carry that, that um, Israeli Jewish lineage and that comes with a lot, you know, it comes with a lot mm. of baggage and, and I've had to unpack that, you know, over time and, and yet I would have it no other way. And so I'm very now at a place where I'm, I'm grateful to carry that some of those lineages. And so, um, what you mentioned around like the, yeah, this idea of narrow, how addiction narrows has been, um, an idea that I very much subscribe to and have been writing and talking about, um, frequently is that, um, addiction is what's called a reciprocal narrowing. And this is a cognitive science term that has been, uh, celebrated and, and t taught by folks like Dr. Uh, Mark Lewis and Professor John Verveke. And so it does have some origins in cognitive science, and it's on somewhat of the leading edge of what we know about both brain, the brain science of addiction and psychology. Um, and so what happens in addiction is we get this reciprocal narrowing of the things that brings us pleasure. And so what that means is that uh, we, we might take a, a drug or drink a beer or smoke a jewel or watch a TikTok and the pleasure centers in our brain get awakened by that substance. And then as that happens, uh, we, our brains want to seek more of that. Cause like you said, there's a novelty there. There's a rush. And as we continue to seek more of that novelty, we form this kind of like dense network of neurons that become reinforced reciprocally over time. And as we do that, and as we seek the thing, our world, the things that are interesting to us, the thing that brings us pleasure, it begins to narrow and narrow further mm. and further until soon all you have is the thing that you're chasing, the drug. That's the thing that you're most obsessed with. And I know that that, I mean, this is where, you know, there's, there's a great saying is like a junkie who needs to get their next fix is the most creative and resourceful person on the planet. And, and I definitely experienced that because, because it's like, there's only one thing that matters to you in the world. And that's, and that's scoring that dope. And you'll find, you know, that people can find a way to get the money to make that happen. Oftentimes it involves crime, right? But the, there is an ingenuity there nonetheless. And so mm -hmm. in this way, like addiction, isn't just a brain disease, 
that, and that's one of, I think the older, more misguided um, beliefs about addiction that I don't personally subscribe to. Um, but rather it is a dynamic relationship between you and the world you're looking to feel at home with, right? So what happens is you take this, the substance, you do the behavior, you're, you're, you become obsessed with doing that behavior. And in doing so your agency to act in the world, it narrows and like maybe the park or the flowers or the bees or a conversation with an interesting fellow like you, it just, it doesn't appeal to you anymore. And so as this world narrows, it's this kind of like this, just this prison that you get trapped in. Um, and so the way, you know, so if that is true and, and we'll, we'll, we'll just for a moment say that the reciprocal narrowing is, does happen. And it, I did experience it. Um, the converse also must be true, which is that it's possible to reciprocally open to the world. And what that could be described is, is the move towards enlightenment, right? Where you're all of the things in life, whether it's the pain, the discomfort, the hardships, the, the birds, the conversation can be areas to, to bring you pleasure. And when you can move and open to the world and to yourself, both dynamically, um, that's when things can shift. Um, and so, that idea, this is, yeah, an idea that has just been really resonant um, for me lately and something that I'm trying to um, sh share more about because I think it's important on a few levels, um, namely being that it it can free us from this this idea of addiction being like a brain disease or, you know, and mm -hmm. so I'll, I'll pause there and see if that, how that lands. Yeah, no, it, it makes, it makes a, a lot of sense to me, you know, even people who are not officially addicts i think they that most of us unfortunately because we don't have the type of education system that is going to make us people who value uh living well and uh really thinking hard about what the highest good would be for us i think the default is to land on pleasure as the highest good and it has perfect evolutionary sense because you're born a helpless newborn, right? And you just look for that uh, milk and this makes you feel good. And very early on, there's a link between, oh, what gives you pleasure is the thing that's going to sustain you, right? And so if you don't put any sort of um, like intentional thought into it, I think that's a very natural uh, default to act in the world with and that's what people do and they do really do treat it in their behavior if you look at it they really do try to maximize pleasure now certain you know conventions and um and things and and cultural norms are going to limit what you're willing to do for pleasure right uh, but for some people, if, if you actually take away all these limiting factors, it kind of makes sense to, to use drugs if, if that is really your highest good, right? If that's your conception of the thing that's worth chasing after. And, um, and so I think in a sense, it's, it's really not all that different conceptually from very normal people, right? Um, and it's just an exaggerated kind of, of, of being. But um, I think that for me, I realized something, and I'm going to link it now with the reciprocal opening. Uh, 
which is if you actually aim to live well, um, you must understand that pleasure is something which is not going to be, your world is not going to be devoid of pleasure. You're just not going to do everything in your power to procure pleasurable things. Instead, you're just going to let pleasure come to you when it does. And also some things hurt or inconvenient, but you still would do them. And what comes in place of the pleasurable things, which could be drugs, cars, girls, TikTok, all these things, um, is actually your ability to be creative, but creative not in order to achieve a goal, but to be playful. And that not only contributes to living well, because it actually allows us to harness every kind of intellectual and, um, and, and other like aspects of us and, and really use them, put them to work, which is inherently pleasurable. It's also novel and novelty as, as I think you'd agree. Um, it's the novelty that when it goes away, pushes any of us to do more and more exaggerated versions of what initially gave us pleasure. Right. And so if you're creative to, to kind of con conclude this part, Creativity is the only sustainable source of pleasure. And it's not so much the creativity that's done in the, in the, you know, because you're commanded to go chase after something. It's playful creativity in the service of actually living well, which is a very open thing, right? Isn't it? Nobody's going to give you that. So that's, that's what, um, your words bring to bring to my mind and yeah now i wonder how how that um kind of strikes you yeah it's play and creativity definitely become suppressed when you're in an addiction and i think that in my case i know that when i had started doing and i you know i was drinking and smoking cannabis and hash and all, all sorts of things in philosophizing and, and writing poetry, uh, you know, and doing that late at night. And so it was an aid in the creativity. And I think this is why so many creatives and artists actually mm -hmm. struggle with addiction because there are times when it can really be a, a friend and an ally or feel as such. And yet eventually it, it ends up suppressing the creative instincts not for everyone, but for, for a lot of people and for most people. And then when you're, when you're free from those things, um, you get to discover what creativity and play mean for you. And you almost have to like relearn that. Um, like, because in my case, mm. I, I had to learn, you know, every activity. And I mean, one of the things I see the most from work, helping, you know, working with people, men and women who, who face addiction of all severities is that, you know, so many people don't know how to have sex to be romantic without alcohol, without some form of mm. substance. Right. And so when we even think about, and I think that sex, you might even say like our drive towards sex to, to, to procreate, to seek pleasure and novelty in that way with partners, right. That's one of the most basic drives and, and it's a creative one, right? It can be, there's no, there's no playbook, right? The way that you touch a, a person, the way that you, 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 you caress them and, when you have to, when you get to learn how to do that without the things that you relied on to do that, 
um, it become it can be really scary, and yet it can also open to this whole new this whole new world um, within yourself. And so, when I think about the role of creativity and play, and then I think I think of like all of these wounded, talented artists who, you know, there's a there's a really rich history and tradition of whether they're alcoholics or those who have struggled with addiction, drug addiction, um, you know, artists and thinkers who uh, remove the, the substance and then do some of their best work. Um, so, yeah, I think about that um, based on what you just shared about it. I think it's really important and is often missed. Like, you know, the 12 steps, Buddhist-based recovery, I've, they don't really, play is not one of the steps, you know, um, which is interesting, you know, and, and it's not, the, it is. that's a whole nother conversation. But one of the things that I think, you know, in part of the work that I do when it comes to addiction recovery, and it's because it's my, the way I orient is addiction. We are all falling somewhere on the addiction spectrum. If you live in the modern world, whether TikTok or Jewel or pornography, most people are finding themselves somewhere on the addiction spectrum. And so, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be just that, oh, that's the person. We, we tend to think of addicts as the people huddled up on the street, and it's just not the case. Uh, right. And so, yeah, I think play, I, I like that. Like in the way I orient towards kind of modern recovery would be invoking play and dance and movement. That's another thing that's missing in traditional it's traditional treatments. And, you know, there, there, some do. There's some really innovative treatment centers I can tell you about that that do work with getting the body really active. Uh, but that was something that was huge for me. And that was a way of me to play in my early recovery. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm grateful to my wife for um, introducing me to more um, activities that have to do with the, with the body and embodiment in general. And just released an episode with uh, Kyle Cock was released and he's a natural parkour practitioner and because i kind of um kind of looked at at my wife getting into this world and was learning from from the shadows and looking at her and realizing that how how um interesting the shift is from walking around and seeing a bench and thinking oh that's just for sitting i don't want to sit right now therefore i'm just going to walk past it you know if i've if i've even given thought to that because i'm probably going to work or whatever and then to have uh parkour eyes and to be like oh you know what kind of jump could be done on this bench it's like not necessarily something for sitting at all you go out in the forest and then the options are even or even more infinite, I think, where it's like, yeah, this is not just a floor for walking on. I could hang, I could just giving it the, the, the third dimension and then the dimension of you actually participating in it, right? You mentioned Verveki, so it would be like um, become, making everything participatory eventually. Um, yeah, I love that. And that's, that's really yeah. cool. Yeah. And it just, that just like, in, yeah, inspired me. I mean, and you're right, right? Like that's what, cause what happens and that goes back to the narrowing and the opening that we were talking about, mm -hmm. right? Where you can't see any other possibilities for yourself. And yet it's so true. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm just inspired even hearing that. Like, yeah, you, you there's so many ways to look at a bench. That should <laughs> be a tagline or a, a bumper sticker. <laughs> yeah. We will work on a meme, me and my non-existent team. Is going to yeah. 
I'm up with a meme. Um, yeah, well, when it comes to more explicitly relating addiction to living well, uh, whatever that means to you, and then maybe healing it, because as I mentioned in the beginning, that was kind of the thing that I was thinking about. Um, in that framework that you use of, of the spectrum, is it is it a done deal at some point? Like you view yourself as not an addict or is it more, um, yeah, where, where does it fall? Or is it more like the, the kind of commonplace way of putting mm -hmm. it, which is I'm an addict who doesn't use anymore? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I want to first just say as a disclaimer that this, this question and the word recovery, sobriety, addiction, it means so many different things to different people. And mm. so what I'm sharing here is just my, my orientation and what I teach. Um, and I really respect people who have different views on this. And I, you know, some of my colleagues do. Um, and so there is like traditionally, right. When we think about traditional addiction and alcoholism, like, or something like AA, which I have enormous respect for, and I've been through the steps. And so I want to say that as well. Um, it, the way it's oriented is that you have a brain disease. You have a disease, right? Maybe not just, it's not just a brain disease. You have a disease. And mm -hmm. if you do not tend to that disease, and if you do not work on yourself, if you do not, whether that's following doing the steps or any sort of process, um, your disease will kind of come back and it's always lurking in the background. And so what you're talking about, like this idea that, um, once you're an addict, always an addict, if you have a chronic disease such as addiction, um, from that lens, yeah, it, you, you, there is no, you know, it's like, it's like having, it's like being diabetic. Um, or, or something, right. you know, where in, in the people I know who subscribe to this, or it's like, for me, it doesn't bum me out. Like, it's like, you know, like a diabetic has to take their insulin, you know, it's just something they have to do. Right. And so mm -hmm. the people who are in it like that, they actually find it really helpful And this concept of addiction being a disease, um, can be really helpful. And I think it's particularly helpful at a useful time, which is early on in recovery when you're like, Oh shit, my moral failings. You know, this wasn't a, the result of me just being a bad person. I actually was sick. I was unwell. And, and yet I find that perspective to be limiting. I think that I, I work in the um, psychedelic space and um, am deeply committed to, to doing that work and helping addicts um, overcome addiction. And what I've seen is that people can actually heal. Um, now this is different for, for everyone. And again, I want to say there's like so much nuance here, um, because it can be really dangerous to tell someone who is struggling that, yeah, you know, you can heal and actually never, you, you might even be able to orient towards addiction differently. You might be able to even do the substance that you thought you had a problem with that you did have a problem with. And so I want to be really careful because like when you're dealing with someone who has and if you have a substance that you have tried to stop and it's causing harm in your life, negative consequences, and you've tried multiple times to stop it and you can't, that's something that should be taken like really seriously and you should try it really cautiously with it. Um, and so like, maybe I'll just speak in, in, in my case, like I, at the amount of levels that I was doing opioids, amphetamines, things like deamphetamine, like Adderall and Xanax, and, um, alcohol, like I cannot 
do opiates safely anymore. Right. And I just know that it's not, it's not a matter like I could take them and I probably wouldn't necessarily today relapse um, into this whole other mode of addiction. I'm with other things, but my, the, the, my brain has been in my body has been chemistry has been impacted so much that if I were to take the opiates again, I would almost be instantly triggered into a withdrawal state. And I, and the reason I know this is because I've tried so many times in the past. Mm. And so on the one hand, like I remain deeply committed to not doing these drugs of choice that were harmful for me. But on the other hand, I do feel like I've um, attained a level of, of healing um, where, for instance, I can uh, intentionally use psychedelics and that doesn't compromise my sobriety in any way. And I don't even necessarily even orient to that word. And so I guess, yeah, to, um, for, for these reasons, because I think that, um, sobriety necessarily isn't the goal. I think the goal should be awakening, living well, and that can look so different for so many people, you know? And so I think the, uh, the last thing I'll just say maybe on this is that if someone has a severe addiction of a variety that has severe consequences, they, they probably will benefit most from abstaining from the drugs that have harmed them. Like I do, you know? Um, but then there's other people I know who, who are able to have relationship and to be, you know, to take breaks for a year and to then really like, Oh, okay, I'm trying this drinking again and it's not working for me. I'm going to stop again. And so, um, I think that part of like the, the work that I try to do is, is help people understand that this is, there's, there's so many ways and paths and everyone is different. Everyone has unique biologies and psychologies. And, um, what I encourage people to do is to find the most generous, expansive approach that works for them. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's sound advice. And it's interesting that even though I haven't given you the whole, um, background story of how I came to this thought about healing addiction, could it be healed? pretty much once and for all um and you kind of made it uh gave the whole the whole framework which says that it's kind of like uh let's say diabetes or something like that but that's actually what kind of triggered the thought in me is a book that i've been reading called cured by uh dr jeffrey rediger which i'm dying to have on this podcast at some point um and he's a he's a medical doctor who just noticed that throughout the last century and a half or something, there are actually accounts of people um, going through remission from cancer, from autoimmune diseases that, you know, were notoriously bad at treating in, in Western medicine, um, things which shouldn't happen, right? Miracles. And he notice that in the medical profession, the explanation to these was, this is a miracle. And he noted that this is very interesting for, you know, such a scientific oriented society to just say, oh, this is a miracle, right? We have no idea. And so all these accounts have been just very few and far apart so that nobody actually gathered evidence on it to see if there's something common to all of these miracles and he set out to to do just that and it's a fantastic book i'm still um halfway through it but people should definitely read it um and 
in it, you learn that people actually, um, yeah, go through remission from the most intense things. And it seems like we are able to treat things that are very much on the surface very well, right? And even deep within our physical body, we have amazing techniques at like going, getting to every part of the body basically and managing with like surgical precision to, re to remove tumors or whatever it is, right? Where it gets very um, not as good is where you get into this body-mind connection and there we kind of completely lose it. And, um, of course, autoimmune diseases are kind of right in that borderline. What is it? Is it mental? Is it? And then we kind of give up at this point. And um, so this whole kind of background with uh, Jeffrey Rediger and his work have really, uh, these are the thoughts that kind of trigger the thought in me of, of addiction, because it's also one of these things that is very unclear. It's, it's the body, it's the body mind. Where is it exactly? How do you reach it? And it turns out, and I think that there is a frontier, which is now people like him and, um, and people like you and anybody who's kind of on the frontier of psychedelics today, I think is trying to finally make a breakthrough through, through, something which for generations have been just simply impenetrable a, a ah. level that we got to a level that we got to and we we're like okay beyond that uh, no idea no idea how to go there um and um yeah so now i'd be really interested in hearing about like your uh, thinking about uh, models that could be proven to be right about this world that's more spiritual, more mystical, and could we get uh, uh, quote-unquote surgical precision in those worlds too? I really like the thread that you're pulling on here. And and, and yeah, you know, just through my, I, I will say that I, you know, it resonates deeply in my being. And I, and I do want to state that I think people can heal from addiction and I've seen it happen. And I think that um, you know, there are people who do that and they use the steps and they work the steps and they have their community around them. And that's great. And then there's other people who, who can take different approaches. Um, and so, um, what I think is what I I'm most excited about when it comes to that, this idea that like, yeah, you can actually heal and maybe in the future, you know, we can totally reorient to this, especially when we think about, um, so one of the reasons I, I don't orient towards the word sobriety is that, I think that humans have an innate drive to seek and alter consciousness. I think intelligence seeks and demands altered states of consciousness, right? And there's so many ways to do this, whether with the breath, breathing super hard, yoga, sex, dance. And then if we, we also think about like novel compounds that might emerge in the future. Um, and I think that what people don't necessarily need to deny themselves of those opportunities. Um, and so um, moreover, like what you're talking about here, it's like almost getting into like this. Yeah. What's the future? What does the future of this look like? What is our mm -hmm. future? What's a more visionary approach to addiction and healing and transformational healing? And I think that it involves altering consciousness, right? I think it also involves abstaining from the things that constrict consciousness. And so one of the things that, and I think like what, how I think about this is like, if, if a person is in a process of removing the substances or the behaviors of the TikToks that constrict their consciousness, um, 
you can heal from that through a variety of modalities. And we'll maybe talk about that in a minute. Um, and I, so to your point, like, yeah, you can heal. And I want people to know that, like to give them the permission that, yeah, you can actually, you don't have to use that ad, that label addict. And I encourage people to, to experiment with what words feel good for them. And, you know, I mentioned the word junkie, you know, there's a move to not use word, language like that. There's a lot of new sensitivities and, mm-hmm. you know, the way I worry is like, I, I'm a person in recovery. Right. I don't say, you know, I'm sober. And so that's, and I try different things, you know? And so I encourage people to, to explore the different identities and see just how malleable identity is. Um, and yet one of the things that can happen, so let's just stay with this idea that like, okay, yes, you can heal your addiction. And maybe you've reached yourself to a place. It's like, wow, I feel I've really healed this. And I don't need to hold this label so tightly that I'm an addict, that I'm an alcoholic, right? Deep, deeply stigmatized words, you know, that contribute to a sense of failure. And, um, and so what I think the danger though is, is from there being like, oh, you know what? Like I'm, I'm no longer an addict. I'm good. I'm going to drink again. Right. And then forgetting about all these cultural and capitalistic pressures that might be contributing to your desire to want to drink, like big tobacco, Mm. big alcohol. And so it's very important that people in this process, at least in the the kind of the way I orient towards this, are like catching their biases. And as Verveke would say, they're bullshit, right? Because you thinking that you want to drink, right? When you go out at a wedding or with your friends, like whose idea is that really? You know, where does that derive Mm -hmm. from? And so mm. when, when it comes to like healing addiction, it's also really important that you're, you're like aware of your relationship between the cultural forces that are really pernicious and at work in the world. Um, and so, you know, that said, I think that people can get themselves to a place in the way that I orient it towards is what are the things that expand my consciousness and I will move towards those. And what are the things that constrict it? And I will try to move away from those things. Yeah. No, I really like this idea. And uh, I will add that in the future, like so many things that I talk about in this podcast, for example, dialectic and the ability to think critically and, and do that, I think that the process of really getting down to the problem and treating it for the first time after it hasn't been treated in many years that's usually kind of uh, usually intrusive, intensive, um, yeah, shocking. It's it's going to require you to learn a lot of new things when you're not young anymore. So your brain is probably not as not as uh, spongy as it used to be. Um, but all these things, I think, in future generations are going to be taught naturally the way our culture acculturates us to certain ideas of like, you should probably drink at weddings, right? I mean, generations down the line, we might not, we might not need to take drastic measures to break out of the molds because it's not going to be so much of a mold anymore. Right. And this is something I, I emphasized because I think for people who hear something like that about psychedelics and they think, oh, so in the future, do you want every 18 year old to take psychedelics as part of some sort of uh, prescribed ritual in our society or something? I, I'm like, no, ideally you just, you just raised a person who's healthy enough and creative enough 
and all that so that they don't need to do something drastic to to break the mold right so it's just something that uh feels important to, for me to to say but in general yeah I, I really like and i really connect with this with this idea of and i've been thinking about it a lot about really taking a, a good uh, sober but not in that sense a good sober look at all the ways in which the culture shapes us and realize how little we've actually explored um, this subjective kind of experience of living in this world because, right, so many objects we've seen as just benches and not things to, to jump over and all that, but it extends to how to make money, it extends to how to make friends, it extends to what to do at party, you know, all these things. Right. Yeah. And I, and I like that you're introducing the concept of dialectic. It's funny. I'm like really kind of a metamodernism nerd. And one of the tenets of metamodernism, you know, following postmodernism is that we're moving away from dialectics and we're moving towards dialogue. And yet, you know, I work as a, I'm a practitioner, you know, of healing and of coaching and, um, I use dialectics, particularly like a Socratic type. Hey, like, well, hold on. Can we question some of these? So this is, you know, when I'm less of probably a therapist because the therapist is, you know, helping you really just uncover what, what uh, with less kind of a, a stern in, uh, engagement in the way that, you know, Socrates would be like, hold on. Can we like, let's go to the bottom of all these assumptions. Um, and there are some modalities of therapy that do that, but I do think there's real value in that. And that's actually, when you talk about that, I, I love you introduced the idea of dialectics because when in recovery, you know, and I don't know if, tell me if I'd be curious of y'all, if you consider this dialectic, but mm -hmm. I'll never forget a moment when I was in early recovery and I had a sponsor in AA and the sponsorship model is really important because it's almost like that Socratic dialectic, right? Where mm. it, the sponsor has the freedom. They're not a therapist. So they don't have to be like, you know, very slow and sensitive and mushy gushy. Not that therapy is like that. I'm a trained <laughs> in somatic psychology. So it's like, I, I don't want to give the impression that that's what therapy is. It's not. Um, and a good therapist can, can do this. But one of the reasons the sponsorship model is so powerful is because uh, I'll just tell a, like a quick story where I think I was like three months into recovery and um, or so, you know, and, and I was like, yeah, and I was still on Suboxone. Meanwhile, having to taper off opiates, but I had stopped drinking and, you know, it was a big accomplishment to have a few months. And I remember telling my sponsor, I was like, yeah, you know, like, I think I'm ready to start drinking and, and smoking weed again. Like, I think I, I've done the work, you know, for, and I'm ready to start doing that. And he just is like, Al, are you fucking crazy? <laughs> Do I need to remind you of what just happened and how much money you just lost, you know, is going through all of the things and, and like, mm -hmm. he's like, wait, uh, how, how much debt are you in? Um, what, what, what's going on with your, with your, your wife now X. Right. And so, uh, it, it almost was like this really like stern shock to like an ontological shock to be like, Oh, my thinking is diluted, you know, and that, in that, um, what was driving, these, the thinking in the first place, right. Was that this idea that I was a party boy and that to party and to have fun, mm. I need to, I need, you know, the culture says that that's what I do and that's who I am. And so, yeah, I don't know if you would consider that type, if it's dialectics and it's proper sense. And yet I see the, the tremendous value of it um, when it comes to us, like living well, as you say. 
Yeah, well, be- because I come from background of of actually uh, reading Plato's dialogues and uh, having trained af- um, under um, Ivor Ludlum, who'd, who'd been on this podcast and really does research on on Plato in a quite unique uh, with a quite unique method. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm afraid I'm quite technical about what dialectic is to me. So I'll just say maybe a little bit about the, the evolution of dialectic and why we use this word. So dialectic without the S would be dialectic A, and that would be the art of dialectic, okay? Hey, techne dialectic A, the art related to dialectic. And then dialectics would be from dialectica, uh, things relating to conversation. And why conversation, and conversation is dialogos, so they're not very different. Uh, but the idea is that in conversation, when people just speak freely with one another, there would be moments where they would actually um, contradict themselves in speech. Right. They would say one thing and then, and then the other thing. And um, dialectic is the idea that this is worth noting. And if you follow along these lines of thought, and get at the heart of the contradiction, you would actually find a concept that's misconstrued and then misapplied in life, which causes problem for the person because um, it's not a line. There are all these different forces inside. Sometimes you act according to statement A, and sometimes you act according to statement B, and they're incompatible. So they're going to take you in different directions, and you're going to not to be enjoying internal harmony over time. So Socrates is trying to make people think by pointing out the fact that there is a contradiction and that they should probably look at it because it would be a better life to live without these uh, misconstrued and then misapplied uh, concepts. But I have to say that the dialogues of Plato, and there is a whole episode on that, and um, on this podcast with Ivor, um, they're very extreme, the characters in the, in the dialogue. So people in reality will probably not be um, so methodically kind of putting other people on the spot because I tried it and I went through this phase and it was like, hey, I'll be a dialectician. I'll be questioning people like Socrates does. Well, with uh-huh. some people that are extremely, extremely curious and really want to know what the other person is looking for, it might work. But for for most people, they would be like, who the hell are you, you know, to kind of question everything that I'm doing right now? I'm not going to do it. And so I found that in real life, everything is not as kind of to the point and and... And you know, it's very Israeli to do that too. Yeah, yeah, true. Israeli, ancient Greek, I guess, (laughs) not too, not too far. Um, Yeah. So, um, so I I don't know if I would call just uh, you know your sponsor, which obviously said the right thing at the right time. So that's fantastic. So for me, like coming from a background of dialectics, it's it's kind of hard to say that uh, this is it. At the same time, I can totally well, you see, can where see you're coming you from. see what I'm talking about, yeah. Because yes, and I yes, love thank yes. you, y'all. You just you just gave a that's such a help. Like I really appreciate that that orientation, right? To illuminating the contradictions, and I think I didn't share the full thing, but 
I very much see that as what he, he, he did and um, mm. illuminating the contradictions within my own thinking and speech. Right. And so and, and um, thinking about the telos, about the goal, like, where is this going to lead you out? It's like, okay, let's look at this. It's like, let's relate it to some future thing. It's like, right. 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 Yeah. Did you say the telos, the telos? Yeah. 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 Nice. Yeah. Yeah, That's what I thought you said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. Like, um, and, and I, um, well, I'm curious, I, you know, this is maybe not, I don't know if this is the direction you want to go in, but I, I'd be curious to hear what you take of like the metamodern integralists who believe that, okay, we're the, the postmodern phase was marked by dialectics and dialecticians and debating and deconstructing all these cultural ideas that we have about society and, and really illuminating that, Oh, hold on this, this dream that, you know, Western liberalism is supposed to make us happier and more um, prosperous and and equitable hasn't really worked out in that way. And, you know, we need to debate it and deconstruct it. And now, you know, if I were to just blunt crudely summarize the the more metamodern integral thinking, it's like, okay, yeah, we we're past that era and now we need to move to more like dialogos, like in the logos, in the in the the dialogue sense of like David Baum building on top of each other's ideas rather than debating. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, to be honest, I'm still I'm still at like the stage of figuring out Plato. So I think um it's going to take me my whole life until I get to like the ni- <laughs> 20th century philosophy. Um, but from what I gather from your ideas, I'm, I'm honestly not that familiar with, with the meaning of these terms. But in terms of uh, dialogos and dialectica, I think that uh, they come from the same root. And actually, uh, dialectic is, in, in some important ways, the opposite of debate because okay so uh, debate again to take the etymology comes from latin to beat down mm-hmm. so uh, formal competition and in uh, in in greek you have uh, eristics which is basically things pertaining to uh, quarrels or arguments and that's an art in itself. So that's the formal debate we see in universities. You need to win by the end of the day. And the point there, in order to win, uh, who is the judge? The judge is the crowd in ancient Greece, at least. And to win, you need the crowd to mock your opponent. And that's when the debate is over. Uh, when the crowd just mocks the other person, is like, oh, he's a complete idiot. That's it. Now, does that uh, mode of of dialogue if you can call it that of exchange of words would ever lead you to the truth absolutely not because that's not what you're looking to do you're not looking to um, make yourself live better you're not looking to better the life of your uh, of the person you're debating with you're not looking to make the crowd think of something novel or new that's going to benefit them. On the contrary, you already know what the crowd expects, so you can turn whatever the other person says and match it with crowd expectations, so they would be like, oh, this person is right, this person is ridiculous. So, And, and dialectic is, um, to begin with, something which is aimed at making your life better by resolving these uh, contradictions and have uh, good concepts, well-formed concepts, and uh, and true concepts. 
And so dialectic from the beginning is a, is a beneficial activity. And um, it doesn't mean that there isn't room ever to debate someone if that's the only thing they understand. And this is in Plato's dialogue, but I'll stop there about that. And then, um, so it seems like when you say dialectic is more a method of like going back and forth, it is, but it's, it's a very, if not a yes and thing, it's, it's a very much a shared, a shared, um, a shared endeavor to, to get totally. the truth. So it, it doesn't yeah. seem to me at least that the meta modern or the thing that looks to build on it is really in opposition to it. Yeah, that I really, that's a very useful distinction. And I think that, um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it is funny too, how that there was that the mockery of the crowd and the shaming of the other person. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that what you just spoke to, and what I wanted to just, uh, underscore is what you just talked about the yes. And w like one of the kind of tenets of metamodernism is yes. And thinking. And so mm -hmm. there's a time there, there is a time and a place for both. And, and I wonder after just hearing your, your technical breakdown, um, I, I my sense is that what these, the more metamodernist integral thinkers, they're, they're actually probably not referring to dialectic in the way that you are technical because when it's practiced Correct. at that level and that, that was depth, implied. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 And so that's, that's really cool. And, and into, I'll, I'll freely admit to these are areas I'm interested in, but by no means I'm an expert. And so, um, yeah, cool. Yeah. It's, it's been, it's been taken and evolved. And I honestly am not, like I said, not too familiar with the, with the modern sense. And, you know, maybe I should be in order to kind of better, um, explain where I'm coming from, because that's where confusions kind of arise when two people use the same word and they don't mean the same thing. And then you need a process of dialectic to figure out. That's what right. That's what we just, on. and we just did, did it. <laughs> there you go. Totally. Yeah. Um, um Cool. Yeah. Cool. Go, go ahead. Y yeah. yeah. Um, no, so this is, this is lovely. And, um, I think that, yeah, if, 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 if I am to take it, uh, a bit back to the original subject and kind of think about these deeper, deeper levels of, of really, and, and see, uh, we, we lack the vocabulary to, to talk about the deepest layers of our being where it's not mind and body, but mind, body, and these places that are, we're given access to through the use of psychedelics or, you know, very intense meditation or maybe embodiment practices like uh, SE and these things. Um, yeah, like what? what is your vision for these things? How do you... How do you now, let's say in yourself or in others, how do you explore this thing to make it eventually have some sort of model in your mind so that you could become a better and better practitioner? Like, do you, did you develop any kind of vocabulary for yourself to describe the kind of stuff that you have access to, um, yeah, on, on psychedelics or through some other type of work like that? That's an interesting question. Uh, well, one of the ways I orient towards addiction is that it is a biopsychosocial spiritual issue. 
And the biopsychosocial is definitely a technical term. And the spiritual is an emer- more of the emergent quality of mm-hmm. what this means. And so what this uh, implies is that addiction both stems from and impacts our unique biology, our unique psychologies, our social settings and structures, and our relationship with spirituality, which is really our relationship with meaning, which is a big subject, you know, like how do we make meaning and what, what's in, what matters to us? Right. What, what do we choose to, to worship? And, and I think we all, we all, as David Foster Wallace reminds us, worship something, you know, whether it's, it's, mm. it's work or, uh, you know, money or God, whatever it might be, uh, TikTok, uh, dancing videos <laughs> on TikTok. Um, and so, um, what the way I think, and I think that applies to life too, right? Like we all, the, the, you know, when we think about holistic living and living well, which is your, that question that you existentially pose here, I, I think we, we want to have a life that kind of encompasses all of those facets. And so um, I guess when it comes to how uh, psychedelics can be so impactful for people is that they, one, they provide them with an interruption from the day-to-day existence, allows them, and particularly for people facing addiction, um, a lot of people have heard about how psychedelics disrupt the default mode network. They interrupt mm-hmm. our normal day-to-day thinking. And so what we once thought was our reality and the, our, our, our minds are always framing reality in a way and choosing what to you know pay attention to. What we once right. thought was the thing, we actually can interrupt that process and be like, oh, huh, wait, like this bench, I could do a handstand and, and a backflip mm-hmm. on, right? Or... I could actually just sit with the discomfort that I have instead of looking at my phone, you know? And so, or like, Oh, actually I'm not an addict or I'm not a depressed person. I'm, I'm okay. You know? And so that interruption is so helpful on the one hand. And then on the other hand, what often happens is that folks encounter a quality of the numinous, the mystical, right? the mis- the mis- the mystery, right? Where you, you literally um, sometimes people for the first time uh, get a taste of awe and wonder. And a lot of the leading research around psychedelics shows that, that this quality of awe and wonder inducing is what can be so powerful. Um, and, and then I think finally, like when it comes to why psychedelics can be so helpful, particularly with, with people facing addiction is because that it, allow, and this is something that I think is really under talked about in just the discourse today, which is that you'll ha- an addict might have a psychedelic experience. And then suddenly, because for any numerous reasons, whether it's interrupting their typical thinking, whether they encounter something mystical, something bigger than themselves, um, or they just see some simple new possibilities and ways of being, um, what it does is it helps them and it potentiates their engagement in the therapeutic process. So in a recovery process where suddenly someone who, you know, has been through like in the people that we sometimes work with, they've been through 15 treatment centers and then they do a psychedelic and they're like, Oh wait, like I I actually want to get better and I want to engage with like recovery on my own terms or a a person who might have an eating disorder is like, Oh, you know what? Actually, I don't want to eat like this anymore. Actually, I want to do therapy. You know, and so um, something that isn't often talked about, like with psychedelics, is that sometimes it just gets people into a therapeutic process. 
And that mm. can be integration. It doesn't necessarily want to mean, when I say therapeutic, I think I just mean like an integral healing process. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing weekly therapy. Although I think that that is important and very helpful. Um, yeah. 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 I, you know, one, one thing that's, that's been amazing for me with my experience with psychedelics is the almost mind blowing fact that you are, uh, you can be, um, you know, basically blasted to smithereens, right? When it comes to like, um, uh, the makeup of yourself as you, as you, as you thought, you know, it, and it seems like, um, at least in the type of individual for which it's, it's going to be beneficial. And I know that I read on your blog too, that we should put the caveats out there that some people probably it's not, it's not the right thing for them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the efficacy of it is amazing. And the fact that you can be blown to smithereens, but then be reconstructed almost not just to something that does resemble you in the end, meaning you didn't really get lost altogether, but just like a slightly better version of yourself, just because like, why is it? that it's the parts that we didn't want that actually tend to go away and not come back. This is, it's really amazing. It's, it's bizarre that, that this is how it works, but it, but it often does. And I keep thinking about it. Like, why didn't I take psychedelics and come back more addicted to something and less, um, less of a, less polite. I don't know. You know, it's like, yeah, right. Right. It's so interesting. And in, you know, what you're talking about there, the getting blown to smithereens, you know, that is something that happens. And I think that for the, maybe the non-initiated, like it, what does that, what does that feel like? And it can feel on multiple, that, that experience can happen on multiple levels. On one level, it can feel bliss, non-dual awakening, joyous, Shakti and Chi Prana or Ruach, I think, as you would say, flowing through mm-hmm. your body, right? Um, and feel really, really good and, and enlightening in that way. And then on the other times, it can feel absolutely terrifying to and, and to have your identity, you know, just erupted and, and dissolved. And no, that's with- usually usually feeling something going up. You know, it's just like this is the most stress inducing thing. It was like, I already see where this is going. I really fucking hope I get to come back as me, you know, because I, I will miss some people in my life. And so, right. Yes. And that's a state that I had to, that, that is a state and an experience that I've had to navigate through in my own process. And it, there's, there's, and you know, and this is where it's where you, you did mention, right. This is, it's, it is worth saying here that these are very powerful cycle technologies are not for everyone. And it's just so important that people who are new to these things or facing something, using them for a therapeutic process are doing it in a supported setting, you know, with experts who can help them because um, it can be extremely destabilizing to have the floor ripped out from under you. And I know that when I experienced that place like that, that what you talk about that fear of like, Oh, I've lost who I once was. And, and, I will might be misunderstood permanently and there might never be a coming back from this. And, and then your question though, because it, you know, people, 
come back, that you, you do come back, right? And when you do get rebuilt, you know, why is it that we're, we tend to be better and not worse? And I think there it's, you know, this is, this is where the limits of our understanding, we, we brush up against, against, against them, you know, um, you know, on the one hand we could say, okay, yeah, well, you disrupted the default mode network and you were able to then suddenly when you loosen that layer of identification. And one of the things I talk about with the people I work with is like, man, we often just tie such tight ropes around ourselves. It's like we're lassoing ourselves and like pulling it as tight as possible. Everything like, Oh, I want to work harder. I want to be better. I want to be smarter, have more money, be have more of a six pack, whatever it is. And it's just like psychedelics kind of loosen the lasso that we, we mm. just whip around ourselves a little bit. So it's like, we, we all can kind of get that you know, when you have your identity smattered, but then there's something else that's happening too. And particularly the, the sacrament that I work with ayahuasca, you know, how it is a, uh, there, there's alkaloids, there is the banisteriopsis capsi, the vine and the chacruna leaf, which contains the DMT. Like there, there are things that in, when the two mix together, um, there are elements that seem to be working on deeper somatic levels that we just don't fully understand how it happens yet. Um, or even, you know, folks are using ketamine for severe motor and spinal pain, pain issues, right? And we don't, I mean, ketamine has an analgesic effect. It has a, uh, it has a pain relief effect. It has a dissociative effect, but also something is actually shifting in on like the cellular and muscular level when people can take these, these substances. And so I don't think, and that can happen with breath work too, breathing really hard, right? Where you're actually repatterning parts of your, your soma and your living tissue. And so, you know, I think this is where there, there's some interesting ideas on how this all works and what this frees up. But I think like, you know, when it comes to the body and it comes to our psyche, just the smallest little tweaks that free up more space for more opening can result in like really big difference in, in day-to-day life and identification. And so, um, yeah. 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 Uh, well, I think, um, yeah, a lot has been said and I'll be, I'll be definitely kind of meditating on the meaning of all this, but I really, really love the, the, the theme that maybe, or one of the themes that we touched on of like how to, look at something, realizing that there could be a problem. And it's one thing to try and make the problem go away. It's a, it's another thing to kind of open up further and, um, yeah, just look at different things until the, the problem is not even at the, the focus of our attention, right? It's not a fight anymore, but a playful exploration. And so in my mind, it's kind of uh, marking the shift from like maybe what we call recovery into discovery and kind of mm. opening up. And I, I, I really, really appreciate it. I wonder if you have kind of a, a last thought about this whole like and relating it to that or anything. Well, I'm just struck by that. I'm still kind of feeling that recovery to discovery. I don't, you know, working in a recovery <laughs> space for how long, and I don't know if I've ever heard that. I, maybe I have. I'm like, damn, that's good. That's so good. It just um, came now. <laughs> you witnessed it. Yeah. I really, I'm going to, uh, I'm hoping Thank that you need permission it's to borrow. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. Um, yeah, because even the word, like, so even the word recovery, right? It's like, oh, like, you know, when you see, I tell someone I'm in recovery, it's like, oh, damn, dude, what happened to you? 
you went, you know, what'd you do? You know, you drink too much or what, you know? And, um, I, I, I like to say when I ask people why, why, like when people like really ask me like, why, why aren't you drinking? Wait, are you sure you don't want a beer? It's like, yeah, no, I, um, I went pro too early and I had to retire, you know? Um, and so I just, I like joking about it so that like, you know, I feel like that's more uh, honorable to like what it, you know, my experience. Um, and, but yeah, this idea of recovery, it comes with it. It's a beautiful word. And so, and it means a lot for so many people. It means a lot to me, but it's also unfortunate that, you know, we have to be like, oh yeah, like I'm in recovery. And some people are like, oh, damn, you know, what happened to you? Huh? Anyways. Um, yeah, I think well, what, here's, what here's is, something I'll, I'll, I'll interject because it's, it's interesting. Like for me, I think a, a lucky trait that I have, is that I tried a lot of things once and moved on. And I think like maybe a good response to somebody is like, why are you not drinking? Why don't you like it? It's because it's like, I tried it. I, I already know I can imagine what's going to happen, you know, and I'm, I'm in a mode of discovery and this doesn't include things which I kind of know what they're like, you know, and, um, it also keeps us from actually fixating on something. So keep moving, keep, yeah, expanding horizons. Yeah. And on that note, like, it's funny because yeah, the, that is, I think it's a cultural thing too. Americans, we tend to be so like, we, we love our labels and we really cling to them. And, you know, I meet Europeans or probably even Israelis. Like I met a guy from, uh, uh, from Amsterdam who's like, he's like, oh yeah, you know, and then I went through my heroin years for like, you know, a few years in my twenties and, and just the way of that framing and the casualness <laughs> of like, you know, I'm not an addict, but yeah, I had my heroin phase, you know, like it just was so inspiring to me because mm. it's so much, I feel like just, I could feel, you know, this is where you can feel a person's just like their relationship to self and you hear it framed that way. It's just, mm -hmm. it puts me at ease and it makes me feel, oh, I can relax a little bit. Yeah. I went through my, I went through my drug phase, you know? Um, and so that's something I'll take away from this conversation. Um, I'm going to, and I think, yeah, this, this idea of opening is what stands out. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I also appreciated where we kind of practice live dialectic. So, um, yeah, that's, this is really good. Really enjoyed this. Awesome, yeah. I, I enjoyed it so much, Alex. Absolutely fantastic. And, uh, thank you very much. This succeeded every expectation that I had. Um, and yeah, I'm definitely going to think more about it. So really, I know there are many thoughts in that head of yours that you put in writing and share with people who, um, come seeking help. So I'd love for you to share with listeners, these, um, kind of venues where, where they can find that stuff. Oh yeah, sure. So, um, my, um, my website is deepfix.co. Um, there you can get, you can find my Substack, which is a deepfix.substack.com. Um, That's my newsletter. I also have a community there. Um, um, I host dialogues. So actually we practice like talking about topics from existential risk, racism, addiction, psychedelics, there's book clubs and there's just this nice little digital community that formed during COVID. And so encourage anyone. And that's just $6 a month to join. And anyone who has a trouble paying that can email me and grant them access. No, no problem. Um, and so we'd love folks to check that out. Um, and then um, I'm the co-founder of a nonprofit uh, 
organization, Natura Care Programs. And that's Natura, like nature, but Spanish, naturacareprograms.org. Uh, it is an interdisciplinary addiction program that harnesses the power of a psychedelic sacrament. And so we, um, anyone, if you or loved ones are struggling with addiction, keep us in mind for, you know, this, this emerging and innovative way to approach this complex problem. Um, there's, there's a lot that I could say about that, but, um, you know, there's, you can check out all the, all the links there and, um, yeah. Thanks again, y'all. I'm feeling excited for, for my day. Yeah, you know, you're about to yeah, probably go course. to bed or wind down. <laughs> <laughs> and when you, when you, I know that there are other ideas that we were thinking about featuring here. So whenever you're ready for round two, you're always, always welcome. It's been amazing. Thank you. Let's do that. I, I, I'm super down. Yeah. Let's, we let's will. make that happen. <laughs>